Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What could go right in a world where we are so focused on what could go wrong? I'm Zachary Carabell. Speaking with me today is Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is the president and CEO of New America. In full disclosure, I am also on the board of New America. She is the former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department, where she was for a few years when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. She was dean of the Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. She's a professor at Princeton she has written a number of books, including A New World Order, The Idea That Is America, Keeping Faith With Our Values in a Dangerous World, and Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, and Family. She is also a frequent commentator. Uh, her article for The Atlantic, which was the foundation for unfinished business about women and work and maybe not being able to have it all, was one of the most read articles ever on The Atlantic's website. She is someone who spans both domestic policy and foreign policy, and her most recent book, which sort of speaks to both of those, is The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. So I'm happy today to speak with Anne-Marie Slaughter. So Anne-Marie, as you know, one of the things I'm trying to focus on in these conversations with stimulating, informed, insightful, passionate, compelling people like you is the under-examined question of we're all acutely aware of the problems that beset us, but what are the things that might turn out better than we think? What might go right? And I know, you know you've been somewhat in between the academic work you've done and the work in government and now, of course, at New America. You're focusing constantly on the problem solving and on the, the issue addressing from the perspective of we can and should try to do something to make a better world rather than resigning ourselves to, oh, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. So, <laughs> you know, I know some. that's a broad beginning of a conversation, but given you think about it all the time. <laughs> uh, well, I think the place to start is the American history around reinvention and renewal. I wrote a book in 2007 called The Idea That Is America, and one of the things that I wrote about was the ways in which you know, we had our founding, we reinvented ourselves, obviously, after the Civil War as a, a more equal, although hardly equal, uh, country, and at least formally more equal. Uh, then again, with the Great Depression, uh, and some people would say, again, in the 1980s uh, with the Reagan Revolution. Uh, but that means I, I have a lens of 
seeing change and even deeply uh, frightening and negative change from the perspective of the moment in a lo- longer context of reinvention and renewal. And we're in the early phases of the digital revolution, which will cause as much upheaval as the industrial revolution did. Uh, but what I see there uh, is uh, a huge set of challenges caused by technology that's changing how we how we work and thus how we live and how our families uh, engage, interact uh, and where we live. So lots and lots of disruption. But I see things, for instance, like uh, the uh, revolution uh, in uh, care and what I see as a coming growth of good care jobs. That's just one, and we can we can talk further about it. I see things like a craft revolution. I'm, I'm really struck by uh, the master breweries, the craft breweries everywhere. That is something many people have commented on, but I see that as the first wave of the return of, 20, of the guilds. Uh, so you have master masons, master builders, master bakers, uh, a, a return to craft and apprenticeship that uh, more on a local uh, level. Uh, and then just thinking about the circular economy and all the things that need to be torn down, like strip malls everywhere, uh, and what are they going to then become? Uh, and how are we going to reuse all of those those materials? So uh, just just talking about even thinking about jobs, uh, I see lots and lots of challenges, but I definitely see a positive renewal. So on the job front, right, the flavor of the month in sort of wonky policy, other circles is the McKinsey Global Institute study a few months ago that talked about uh, what percentage of current employment is at risk by being replaced by technology, by robotics, by artificial intelligence. And those figures you know, range from 25% to up to 50, depending on the job and the place, some much more vulnerable, some much less vulnerable. And it's easy to respond to that with a, oh my God, you know, we have enough problems currently with underemployment and people disengaged or disenchanted with their prospects for work. And then this comes along, which would suggest that the disruptive effects of technology is in the early innings and not the later stages. How do you respond to that? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do with that? So New America and Bloomberg Beta have been doing this stu- study on the future of work. Uh, we've looked at all that literature, and you know the the estimates really do range. Uh, there are there are some estimates that say no, it's going to be ten percent of jobs that are automated, and then others, as you say, are as high as fifty percent. But I do think it's important to point out that. Uh, Some things happen much faster than we expect, uh, and nobody expected to have self-driving cars being piloted around the streets of Pittsburgh uh, now. On the other hand, there's tremendous uh, difficulties in the final mile (laughs) between uh, pilot experiments and actually uh, displacing jobs. So uh, I think it's it's uncertain. But I, I actually do think we are radically underestimating the new kinds of jobs that will be created. And I 
I I know all the arguments about well the Luddite fallacy is not a fallacy this time you know that every time before technology's created as many jobs as it's destroyed from horses to cars etc but this time it won't because it's faster and deeper I get all that but I just recently went to an exhibit of 3D printed materials and I've read a lot about 3D printing and uh, you know. Uh, was able to think about it in the abstract. When you actually are touching textiles that are created by 3D printing and uh, furniture that is being made by 3D printing and uh, the uh, ceramics, anything you could think of, suddenly I realized anyone can be an architect and a builder and a manufacturer because the technology essentially says y- y- you just have to think it and you can make it. So it's like going from um, you know the Middle Ages to the printing press where in the Middle Ages only a few people could write uh, and could create books that would then be painstakingly uh, um, you know preserved. And then suddenly everybody can write uh, because – or at least everybody can read. The printing press is really about everybody can read. The computer then is probably everybody can write. But that's just an explosion in human possibility. And I think 3D printing is going to be the next explosion where suddenly something you had to have a really specialized set of skills to be able to do is going to be open to anyone. What about the idea of all these things – you know, creating more leisure, right? More time. A lot of Western history, a lot of human history has been about can you get enough food and enough uh, sustenance and enough security to, you know, make it through the next year. But but a lot of these things seem to open up a huge amount of leisure space. Is there any work afoot about what the economics of that might be, or are we a little bit too far ahead of ourselves? I think one of the great questions is will there be enough work to really be able to support a good lifestyle, you know, a lifestyle of of education and at least some property acquisition, even if we're sharing a great deal of what we now uh, own, uh, and uh, also enough work to provide dignity and purpose and meaning to our lives. Uh, So, you know, a certain amount of the leisure could only be good, right? For people who are unbelievably stressed now through both economic insecurity but also time pressure, the idea that let's say you could work six hours a day or even five hours a day uh, at good work uh, that would provide, uh, allow you to earn a living and have the rest of that time to you know, pursue what you want to pursue, which for many people will be care. It'll be care of children, care of parents, uh, simply care of family members, uh, or how you know, investing in your house or your community or self improvement in all sorts of ways. That's a that's a happier future, and you know, we are in time poverty for for many. Uh, middle class and upper class people, uh, the flip of, is is people who then don't have enough work uh, at the uh, lower income levels. But there is a vision that says you have more leisure and and but you can still actually again not just support yourself in the bare minimum, but but support a, a decent life. 
much beyond that, and I get very uneasy. I mean, the idea that, you know, people are going to have a basic income and a lot of leisure, I think, A, that is not economically feasible, but it also strikes me as uh, a pretty dystopian future. I really do think that people need projects, uh, and they need to be projects that are useful. I mean, the difference between make work and real work uh, or a paid job versus uh, not all volunteer jobs. Many volunteer jobs uh, have a, a lot of meaning. But, you know, you think about the summer internship where you know you're not really doing anything important. That's deeply, uh, I think, harmful to most human beings. So I, I'm looking for more leisure, but not not complete leisure. Cue the generalization music. Um, it sounds very <laughs> French as a, I mean, there was like a 32-hour work week, take August off and work as a sort of facilitation for a good life, whatever that means. You know, was embedded in a lot of sort of modern French law and economic structure. And I suppose it's, you know, arguable whether or not that's been dystopian. I think a lot of people would say it's been quite utopian, but it clearly hasn't made people overly happy. Of course, that may raise the question of maybe just people aren't set up to be happy. But I mean, why isn't that experiment working? It, it would seem like we have at least one case where that was attempted. Well, you know, whenever I'm in Europe, I am always struck by the different balance between work and life, just, just the amount of time that many Europeans spend at table, right? They still have meals <laughs> together, and they enjoy uh, the experience of eating and, and engaging with one another. Uh, and I think, you know, the French labor market has got a lot of problems, but it's not clear to me uh, that, that that's uh, that, that hasn't worked uh, society-wide yeah, consistent with a with a growing economy. I mean, and the French are actually hugely productive. They just work many uh, fewer hours. But I know that. But you're right. There has it has, certainly hasn't ushered in uh, universal happiness. Although the French can often find plenty of things to be upset about. Uh, but I would look more at Denmark or some of the Nordic countries, who which have more competitive economies, open economies. Uh, and in Denmark, most people leave work at four o'clock. Hmm because that's when they're going to pick up their kids. So, and, you know, that's a, I think that's a better example where people really, they, they routinely top the happiness index. And I think part of it would be they've got more time, again, whether it's leisure, not, you know, picking up your kids and cooking family dinner doesn't always feel like leisure, but it, it, it's better than not, you know, just simply not having the time uh, to do that and to simply enjoy being with each other. So you've, I mean, that's a, it's a great point. You've looked at a lot of this, uh, certainly in, in your book, Unfinished Business, about women, men, work, family, right? You, and, and the earlier Atlantic article, which got such intense reactions, both positive <laughs> and not so, about the formula, particularly in Northern Europe, that's a little more, not just family friendly, but which takes these, this idea of balance between work, this thing one does for money, family, this thing one does because it's an essential component of being alive, and seem to create some balance that serves both needs. Why yeah. is that formula, in your view, worked? I mean, we all look at Scandinavia, kind of scratch our heads. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, this, this is also gross generalization. The theories range from the Protestant work ethic to the, a much 
lower emphasis on family because of much, much greater mobility. You know, in a lot of European countries still, you live in very close uh, to where you grew up. There's much less geographic mobility, uh, and that means families, family dinner, uh, families uh, helping each other uh, are still uh, play a much bigger role in society than the United States, where many of us uh, many of us came here from other countries, and many of us move uh, all over the place uh, ourselves. Although mobility is is going down, uh, you know, I I think where where I've come out on this is that it isn't even just work and family. It's really about valuing the work of care uh, across the board. So here, that's another comparison with. Scandinavia, in Finland, teaching is one of the most prestigious um, pr uh, professions, which wasn't always true, uh, but the Finns have revolutionized their education system, K through 12 and uh, higher ed, but you know, like community college uh, higher ed, uh, and they did it by really um, like taking the very best graduates and having them go into teaching. Now, teaching is just one example of care. Care is investing in other people and parenting, but the flip of that is that as far as I'm concerned, three-fourths of parenting is teaching, hmm. right? There's the physical stuff, uh, which we all, all do, but really what you're doing most of the time is teaching your children how to navigate the world, how to do the right thing. So I think there's a larger issue that Americans were a very, very competitive society, and I'm very competitive as a human being, but I think for in a number of ways, we do not value investing in others. And again, that's teaching, that's coaching, that's ministry, uh, uh, that's parenting, uh, but also taking care of our own parents. Uh, and another potential upside of automation or artificial intelligence is that the care jobs are the ones that are routinely the least likely to be automated. Now, some will be, you know, elder care, you're going to have robots doing heavy lifting and bathing, things like that. But again, you need human beings to engage with other human beings to develop uh, those uh, capacities, even when you're working with a computer. So it's often, it's often both and. Uh, but I think if that's true, we should see much more valuing of care. And that will mean instead of thinking, oh, yes, well, I have work, and then there's family that I cram in around the edges of work, you'll be thinking, you know, I have the that part of my life where I invest in myself and, and paid income and that part of my life where I'm investing in others. And those two things are really equally valuable. I mean, do you see that starting to happen? Uh, it's, I mean, it, I know you've been an advocate of this. I know there are some corporate examples of it. On the, you know, on the flip side, one aspect of care and teaching was for a long period of time, large companies saw it as both a need and an imperative that they train younger people to work, right, to the, yes. the skills yes. training. And increasingly, companies are like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I'll let someone try to get their skills, and then they can come to me because I don't want to spend the money. I mean, where, does, where do you see that going right now? Some of that is a return to apprenticeship, right? So people will pay others um, – They'll invest in others, but they won't uh, at full price. 
I mean, I used to be a lawyer. I was a law professor. The law firms, no, the the top law schools, uh, many of the law schools did not really teach what you needed to know to practice. They gave you a general education, and then you went into the law firms, and the law firms trained you, and after two or three years, you, you could do it. That's exactly where law firms are demanding that that schools do more of that, or you turn more to, well, you just pay first-year uh, uh, associates uh, much less um, and and really have what, what in Canada used to be known as articling, where you're effectively an, an apprentice. So some of that, I think, is price point. Uh, and but thinking about the process of training and investing as a society-wide good. That yes, you're right. We used to put on employers; it got too expensive. But we still need to do it. So we have now all sorts of programs looking at apprenticeships, looking at at kind of certification and training on the job, but in a way that that is economically effective and still gives people skills. And I'll also just say, you know, I'll get in trouble for saying it, but I think the idea that care is vitally important is not news to women. (laughs) You know, this, this, of course, this is obvious that you have to do this as a society, and women have been doing it uh, for society. But the minute women can't do it uh, because they need to earn uh, a a wage, and of course we know that women's entry into the workforce has been what kept many middle-class families afloat. for 30 years, uh, then somebody else has to do it, or we have to make room for it uh, in in the way we we work. Uh, so what I see, I see change coming slowly. Uh, I think the combination of digital work and generational change, and uh, also costs. Corporations are realizing they let if they let people have more flexible schedules and work at home and have uh, a better balance, they can pay less for real estate. Uh, but also a gradual rise of women managers and men who are equal parents, you know, <laughs> who are equally uh, trying to cram in uh, both work and family. We'll see change in the right direction. Yeah, and there's obviously some, you know, there is evidence of that happening. Although, I, you know, I wonder about have we plateaued for a while in the pace of that change? I mean, it's certainly true that you know women's prominence in the professions, medicine, law. Um, accounting, you know, cer- certain things that require higher levels of education, higher degrees, academia, that seems to be increasing. Um, but it's not clear that the, the sort of the policy and political framework around that is changing much, is it? It's changing some. So if you talk to family values at work, uh, they will tell you that until Trump's election, they were really making progress state by state, city by city. Uh, and also, again, uh, various bigger companies that are just realizing that, that the, both for retention of workforce but also to ha- increase in productivity, you have to release, re- reduce stress on your workforce. And one, one of the biggest sources of stress is the impossibility of trying to work a fixed schedule and, and take care of people. I mean, as I always say, the care give, rhythms of care are unpredictable. By definition, right. <laughs> and so you have to really have, have flexibility. I think I do see change, and even the Trump administration uh, came in 
office was led by Ivanka Trump talking about paid family leave and care. We have not seen that materialize. We uh, haven't really seen it talked about that much, so we'll 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 wait and see. Uh but I I think uh that what we're seeing now may be a backlash and a, and and a, a slowing up, but I don't think it's going to change the long-term uh, trend and the other thing I might add is that there's I think a, a growth area in coaching, which is another form of care, mm. uh, where obviously coach, uh, sports coaches, vocal coaches, th- these are people who monitor the other people's performance forever, right? A coach, you know, mm. you don't have a coach for one game or one vocal performance. You have a coach uh, forever. Now you're getting life coaches and executive coaches and career coaches. I think there's a lot of those jobs uh, that in some ways are just more masculine care jobs <laughs> where it's easier to call yourself a coach than than some of the more traditional uh, teaching jobs that have been more more, more feminine. Uh, but again, I see I see demographic factors, both the aging of baby boomers who will need care and, and millennials who are having kids who need care, but also that these are, as I said, jobs that are much, much harder to automate. Uh, and that will create some economic incentive around this larger cultural change. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I want you to talk a little bit about your recent book, The Chessboard and the Web and and Connectivity, because one question that always comes out of this is, are these trends that we've been talking about work and changing dynamics of care, they they can feel like they are existing in a completely different universe from this sort of very traditional state structure, Westphalian, you know, ways in which we think about international relations. So one, is that true? I mean, are they completely are these just like different questions, different fields? And you've obviously been at the intersection of both of them um, in the time at the State Department. Or is there a connectivity of these questions that may not be apparent when you read the newspaper or the way we think about things? But, you know, is the world becoming more connected around these questions and issues? Is it becoming less connected? Are these webs? Are we going to look back at this 30 years from now and go, ah, you know, that was all this weaving together and it looked totally atomized at the time? Uh, or we, are we going to look back as we we look back now in World War One and see a deeply connected, globalized world that then you know got torn apart right. uh, with, with a major event? 
you know, I, I the, so the the book, the chessboard and the web, really argues there are two ways to see the world, uh, and that's true in foreign policy. I think it's true pretty much uh, in some some ways domestically as well. But the the certainly in foreign policy, the chessboard is the United States and Russia, the United States and South Korea, uh, North Korea, the United States. I mean. Uh, the United States and Iran, and they're the the classic great power politics is the chessboard, where we make a move and and uh, another country responds. We try to anticipate that respond uh, that response. It's some kind of game, chess, poker, sometimes chicken, uh, but that is a very uh, real world, and it's alive and well, and you can read the newspaper and identify exactly uh, who's playing what game. I think at the same time, we are in the networked world, which has been greatly accelerated by globalization, the internet, technology more generally, so much so that even young people, I think, don't really know what it is not to be connected. Uh, they don't start from the notion of the rational individual who chooses to connect to others. They start from networks uh, of various various kinds. Uh, and those networks kind of operate below the surface of states, through states, above the surface of states. And we need to be able to uh, look at how people are connected, how businesses are connected, how non-governmental organizations and criminals are connected and superimpose that world of networks on, on the chessboard world. So you've got to be able to see both at the same time. So where do you see the next phase of, of our networked world? I mean, it's obviously easy reading any newspaper, listening to any commentary to develop a, a, a darker view of where technology and disruption and jobs and employment and nationalism is all leading. How much of these currents are amenable to being affected by the propagation of constructive ideas? <laughs> well, I do think we're in for a, a very, very bumpy time, and let's hope it's only bumpy, because it, 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 the scale of this kind of disruption, and frankly, the scale of the global population, uh, you know, six, seven, eight billion people, um, and of the economic and social and cultural uh, disruption, I, even as an optimist, it, it's it's going to be turbulent. Uh, and I was just in Paris uh, a week ago and thinking that French Revolution happened in 1789. France didn't become anything that looked like a stable liberal democracy or any, even an early version of that until roughly 1860. So, you know, even when we think about Western history, much less, of course, even our our own. So I do I do think that we're going to see some disconnection. I mean, that's really what nationalism is. It's saying, wait a minute, we ha we want our borders, uh, and we want them to be real borders, and we want them to keep out uh, cheap goods and people who undercut. Uh, jobs in the perception of those who are saying this or people who don't look like us. Uh, and you've got a really nasty version of nationalism out there that is racially based or religiously based. But you also have uh, what Lawrence Summers calls 
responsible nationalism, uh, where it's, well, wait a minute, governments do have different obligations to their citizens than to people elsewhere in the world, which philosophically may be unsatisfying and even immoral, but practically is essential for political communities to survive and, and thrive. So I think you're going to see disconnection in various ways, and but then I would hope reconnection, again, more deliberately, more thoughtfully, uh, but also taking advantage uh, of technologies uh, in ways that may, may also be able to allow better connections. I and mean, I'm just thinking about diplomacy. You don't have to go through embassies that look like bunkers, not when you're, you can actually communicate digitally uh, with people or even um, – uh, face to face, but but in ways that don't require a formal uh, embassy. So I think that we are going to see a pulling back, a disconnection, a question, a really a, a set of questions around what does a government owe its citizens and what do citizens owe their government, uh, but still in a world where national borders matter. Uh, and you have to hope we're going to get through all that without civil wars and or obviously the horrors of interstate war in now an age with weapons where such a war could be devastating beyond anybody's imaginings. Well, that certainly is uh, something to be hoped for. And then on the, <laughs> on, on the domestic front, I mean, do you see things improving in spite of all these kind of global – Tensions? So I do. I really do. I, you know, New America's in the business of renewal, renewal, renewing America in the digital age. But what I see as I travel across the country is a very different story than the national narrative, because I see lots of small and uh, middle-sized cities or uh, today, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from Indianapolis and Indianapolis has a downtown that uh, it has been meticulously renewed. I mean, beautiful 19th century buildings that, that have been renewed, but also modern buildings and neighborhoods that are coming back but are grappling with not uh, gentrifying in ways that destroy the original community. They have a vibrant tech sector. Uh, they uh, are doing things like, you know, taking old stadiums down and, and creating housing out of them. Uh, and uh, so in the sense of, of recycling. Uh, and I see that in so many small and mid-sized cities, Columbia, South Carolina, my own hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, Chattanooga, um, Boulder, what well, people know that Boulder's a big uh, tech, tech sector, uh, Charlotte. So lots of smaller cities uh, and and even some bigger ones where people are just getting on with it. Uh, they're crossing political lines uh, and they are uh, inventing or using new technologies uh, in ways that don't look like the Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley model, but nevertheless uh, is is sort of part of, of the, the digital uh, revolution. I also think a lot of those cities need to connect better to their counties and rural populations, for sure, and that's something I think many people understand after the 2016 election. But I see a country that is reinventing itself uh, and uh, in ways that, that, that give me a lot of optimism uh, about where we can be in 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I believe you're right. 
I hope you're right. And thank you, Anne-Marie Slaughter, for some absolutely crucial insights. I enjoyed it. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.